0: Hello, and welcome to Talking U-Retina. This is a new series exploring the latest news and developments in the world of retina. We'll also keep you up to date on the latest events, activities, and strategy of the European Society of Retina Specialists, U-Retina. I'm your host, Jonathan McRae. In this episode, we'll be exploring some of the hot topics in diabetic retinopathy in a panel chaired by Professors Eduardo Medena from Padua and Rainier Schlingerman from Amsterdam. But before we start, just to let you know about an upcoming Euretina live event, the next Euretina Case Club will be co-hosted by Ramin Talayoni, incoming president, and Sophie Bonin, live from Paris on January 20th at 8pm Central European Time. There'll be six case presentations from younger colleagues discussed by well-known experts at David Seraf, Renier Schlingerman again, Alain Godric, Yannick Lemaire and Aude Couturier. Register in the events section of our website at Uretina.org. You can also play back any of the previous webinars there, too. All right, well, I'd like to uh, welcome chairs of this episode, Eduardo Midena and Renier Schlingemann, who are both board members. You're both very welcome. They're joined by our contributors, Jakob Graslin from the University of Southern Denmark and Jennifer Sun from the Jocelyn Diabetes Center in Harvard. You're both very welcome. Eduardo and Renier, over to you. Well, thank you, Jonathan. And uh, we're looking
1: forward to a great uh, discussion. We have three subjects. Uh Today, to discuss, we want to talk about uh, anti-VGF in non-proliferative uh, diabetic retinopathy. We also would like to discuss uh, a little bit of a new kid on the block in the treatment of DME that is uh, coming at us, and uh, it would be interesting to see how to deal with that. And the third subject we would like to discuss is uh, artificial intelligence in diabetic retinopathy uh, screening. But let's kick off with the first subject, which is uh, non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy, and the um, yeah newly registered registration of anti uh, VGF agents for the treatment of uh, non-proliferative type of retinopathy. And there's a lot of discussion about this subject, not only in Europe, but also in, uh, in the States. And uh, Jennifer, um, you are very much into this uh, subject. And could you give us a, a, a very short summary of the two main studies that have uh, sparked this uh, development?
2: Absolutely. So this is certainly a hot topic in diabetic retinopathy right now. 2021 saw the publication of two major trials for anti-VEGF treatment of eyes with severe non-proliferative retinopathy. Um, and these were, of course, the DRCR retina network protocol W and the registration panorama trials uh, as well. And so both of these studies actually had remarkably consistent results. They both um, enrolled eyes, protocol W enrolled eyes with moderate to severe non-proliferative retinopathy, Panorama enrolled eyes with moderately severe to severe non-proliferative retinopathy. And the two-year results from both studies basically showed that using anti-VEGF, what we would consider relatively early uh, for eyes with non-proliferative disease, did dramatically decrease the rates of vision-threatening complications such as diabetic macular edema or proliferative diabetic retinopathy. In the DRCR network uh, protocol W, we saw about a threefold decrease in these events. Uh, The combined totals were about 44% in the sham-treated group versus 16% in the aflibercept-treated group. Panorama actually, as its primary outcome, really looked at also uh, retinopathy improvement, and there, as we've seen in the registration trials for DME, uh, the eyes treated with a flibercept had substantially more two or more step improvement from baseline in diabetic retinopathy severity score than the sham treated groups, um, anywhere from 50 to you know, nearly 80% in the flibercept groups um, with 15% or fewer eyes in the sham group improving by two or step more improvement. Um, but again, the results were consistent among both trials. I will note that visual acuity outcomes, despite the fact that we saw a very clear anatomic signal of improvement with anti-VEGF, we didn't really see long-term vision gains with anti-VEGF treatment. Um, so over two years, there was you know, no identifiable difference uh, in visual acuity in eyes treated with a versus sham in both these studies. Protocol W is an ongoing study, and so we'll have longer uh, four-year results uh, coming out in a year or two from now.
1: Wow. So the, the data seem to be impressive. but um, So what does it mean? Will patients be injected the rest of their lives?
2: I think, you know, this is really the, the key question. And and so, you know, as we think about, it's always a question of risk or benefit of early treatment. And there are some clear benefits that accompany anti-VEGF treatment for NPDR. Again, you know, it seems like we can reduce the, the rates of PDR. We can reduce the rates of center-involved DME over time. But what we don't really know is, again, whether this is gonna be a long-term improver for visual outcomes for our patients, whether it's gonna reduce the long-term treatment burdens. And also we don't have a good sense of whether or how it might reduce the underlying disease. Some of the studies that have been done suggest that perhaps anti-VEGF treatment might slow the development of worsening non-perfusion, but doesn't necessarily bring back non-perfused retina into, into new perfusion.
3: Uh, I think there are two points that, Jennifer, would like to comment. One is the, the topic, I underline the fact that you mentioned that visual acuity has not changed, more or less. And, and therefore, it's it seems a sort of prevention treatment, the point one. And the second point is that, is the uh, decrease in the steps of retinopathy as ophthalmoscopic pictures or ophthalmoscopic lesion, what really means in a more sophisticated approach in imaging or in uh, in the real uh, milieu of the retina.
2: Mm-hmm. So yeah, really I, you the, know, I think it, the, the picture the, certainly looks
3: at A theory of years of treatment, uh, but just change in hemorrhages and microaneurysms, right. which is not probably the most important in the retina.
2: I think that's so important, Eduardo. You know, I, I think as physicians, it really behooves us to sort of keep in mind that the most important outcome is going to be how does this affect patients' visual function and really their overall quality of life. So as much as it makes me happy as a retina specialist to see the retina, retinal hemorrhages disappear, um, if it's not making a difference for my patients in their daily lives, it may not be worth it in the long term. Yeah.
1: And, and what kind of schedule uh, is proposed based on the results of this study? Monthly treatment or is there any so, way to, to go to, to longer intervals?
2: Yeah, so both of these studies, um, the Panorama study, uh, the two Aflorecept arms, one was every 16 weeks, and one was, you know, every eight weeks moving to a PRN regimen. Uh, The DRCR retina network study, we gave a few uh, loading doses, and then essentially gave it every 16 weeks.
1: Okay, so every four months an injection, yeah.
2: More or less.
1: Yeah, and could you say anything about cost effectiveness?
2: Oh, there, I think we don't... um, we don't have a good handle on that yet, given you know, especially given the fact that there is still data yet to come from four-year results. Um, you know, anti-VEGF potentially is is a reasonably expensive treatment, and so depending on which agent you are using, of course, and the cost-effectiveness, I think it depends on what your what the long-term benefits are. You know, if the visual acuity results are the same between patients treated with sham versus a flibercept, then clearly the cost is going to be more in the in the group that's getting interventions.
1: But um, you said there was a lot of discussion about this in the states,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um, so what? What are other points that that come up in that discussion?
2: Yeah, well, so you know, at this point in time, we have two anti-veg agents that are FDA approved specifically for treatment of diabetic retinopathy, um, and that's now in eyes with or without diabetic macular edema, and so I think you know the availability of this uh, as a reimbursable procedure has has you know also made people interested in discussing whether or not it's something we should be doing. There are certainly people who um, have brought up questions about, you know, will treating in earlier stages of disease help to preserve visual function better, help to prevent longer term declines in quality of life and, and other measures of patient satisfaction. I think the problem is we just don't have, we don't have clear data right now um, to, to address these points.
3: I have a point, uh, again, because I'm quite uncertain about this. Uh, you uh, said that there is a, a reduced amount of patients undergoing proliferative retinopathy. So meaning the effect of the anti-VGF and the prevention of proliferative retinopathy, which is the pathway for this. Mm-hmm. Because anti-VGF not necessarily are working at the perfusion level. So why are they are working on the new vessels?
2: Right. Well, you know, I think clearly the blockade of of VEGF is very effective at regressing new vessels. Existing. Exist existing new vessels. Right. Existing abnormal new vessels, I suppose I would say. Yeah. Um but, but yes, but, you know, there have been some really nice studies done that uh, have looked at patients treated with, say, three monthly injections of anti-VEGF and following these eyes very closely with fluorescein angiography and OCT angiography um, that have not shown sort of re-sprouting of non-perfusion.
1: Yeah, it's it's the data seem to support that VEGF is building up in the eye from the uh, ischemic retina and that that needs time. And, and of course, we, we know that neovascularization in proliferative retinopathy, it, it doesn't happen all over the place. Usually, it's, it's just a few locations. So there must be inhibiting factors that, uh, through which the, the neovascularization has to break through. So maybe you can tip the balance back even with, um, with a short period of, of treatment. And, and again, the, 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 the VHF probably has to build up to a critical level to um, reinitiate the uh, neovascularization. Because the PDR studies have also shown that you don't need very frequent treatment.
2: Right. It really is impressive how sensitive retinal neovascularization is to anti-VEGF. And you know, I think Bob Avery's early studies showed that he could give 1 100th of the dose that we typically use in clinics and still get reasonable regression of neovascularization in the eye.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jacob, would you choose anti-VEGF for non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy if it's registered for that purpose in Europe?
4: Well, thank you for for welcoming me to, to this podcast. Um, I, I, I think I would be a bit conservative here and go with some of the standard uh, treatments of care, which is improved glycemic control, improved, improved blood pressure control, and timely screening. That would be my first line of defense in patients with uh, severe non-proliferative retinopathy. For some of those patients, you would need some kind of treatment, uh, maybe because they have a rapid progression of retinopathy. And normally we would go with laser in in that case. What we have to keep in mind also in non proliferative retinopathy is if patients progress to proliferative retinopathy, we still have an effective treatment for them. We can do laser, we can do anti-VGF. So I would normally just observe patients at that stage.
1: Well, I think I would agree with you. And of course, we, we've we seen the um, pretty bad results of non-compliance of patients with PDR after a period of anti-VEGF, And when they're lost to follow-up or think everything is okay after two years of injections and they come back after four years, you can have very bad disease, very advanced proliferative retinopathy. And that is, of course, also a risk for this this patient category who is even maybe less uh, attentive to um, the, the vision-threatening forms of retinopathy because they have n- not experienced that as yet. So um, in the long run, um, the question is how this will work for for patients who are already, of course, also bothered by their um, physician. for They have to go to the hospital, to their doctor so often. So that is al- already quite a burden for them. So... Um, Yes of course we understand the discussion and I think we will have the same discussion in uh, in, in Europe as well uh, about this. Is there anyone else who would like to make uh, another comment on this uh, on this subject?
3: I was wondering the fact that we are a little bit moved from the use of anti-VGF in non-proliferative severe to proliferative one. Uh, uh, Jack introduced the fact that uh, in the northern part of Europe Jennifer they are more strict according to their protocols. <laughs> Pan-retinal photoagulation, nothing more. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving to the Mediterranean, a little bit south as Italy is concerned, and my question is that, but I think that at the end of this of this topic, it's, it's interesting to have the different opinions because we observed that combining the NTBGF during pan-retinal not for so many injections and so on, it provides a faster reduction in proliferation less vitro retinal traction in particular, because the vessels have a different uh, natural history or history induced by laser. Which is your Mm. opinion about this?
2: You know, I think there are a lot of physicians, you know, that use combined anti-VEGF and panretinal photocoagulation, particularly for cases of proliferative retinopathy. And there's something very attractive, as you say, about regressing the new vessels. Certainly in, in my hands, it makes the PRP much easier when I can get to the retina and um, and all the rest. So, and, and you know, I think the other potential side benefit is perhaps anti-VEGF uh, controls and reduces the, the subsequent rate of Center involved diabetic macular edema, which is nice also. So I think it's a very reasonable strategy for patients. You know, I we have been trying in the DRCR Retina Network to think of a study that we can do with combined treatment because I, I do think it's used so frequently now. Um and and so, you know, frankly, we would we would love to do a study with it, and we just haven't found quite the right question. But I think there's a lot of opportunity there to uh, to leverage the advantages of both therapies.
4: Yeah, and I perfectly agree. Uh, I think my philosophy is that at some point when you have proliferative retinopathy, you would need laser treatment. So so you might as well get it earlier than later, but but you would need it at some time. But, but I think anti-VGF is a very nice approach that you can use in the beginning, in the middle, or at the end of, of this disease. So, so mm-hmm. I, I tend to use a combination more and more.
2: Yeah. You know, one of the things the studies haven't told us, because we haven't followed patients out long enough, is whether if you're managing proliferative retinopathy with just anti-VEGF, if you can ever stop. Um, At the end of our protocol S, you know, which was five years out, we were still on average giving patients three injections a year. Now, part of that may have been the way we designed the treatment algorithm, um, because if you got any anti-VEGF, essentially, you were almost committing the patient to probably about three shots. But I will say just my anecdotal experience from clinic is also that it's, it can be hard to get patients off the anti-VEGF. It's not like DME, where there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and I really think you can taper the treatment in many patients. So, Jakob, I think you're, you're right. I think, you know, over time, I've the pendulum has swung back and forth. And I think there's been a lot of early interest in anti-VEGF. And I will often use it, particularly in my young type 1 diabetic patients, where I'm sort of hopeful that maybe we can use it to get them to a point where we have even newer and better non-invasive therapies without destroying their retinas. But down the road, I'm moving more and more towards PRP, particularly in anybody where there's a question of compliance or being able to follow up.
3: Okay. Uh, Now, um, once again, probably the question is going to Jennifer because probably in the USA they have more experience about this. And there is new drugs appearing on uh, scenario in the treatment of diabetic macular edema as has been done in uh, age-related macular degeneration is farisimab, which, uh, uh, which should be able, theoretically at least, uh, to work at the same time on two pathways related to the pathogenesis of diabetic macular edema. Uh, may you, Jennifer, summarize for us uh, this kind of topic and then we discuss about it.
2: Sure, Eduardo. So the, the map trials for a diabetic macular edema were Yosemite and Rhine, and these trials enrolled nearly 1,900 patients who were randomized to one of three treatment arms. Uh, two of these were furisimab arms. One was a Q8-week dosing. One was a personalized treatment interval dosing. And the third was a flibercept given every eight weeks, uh, as per the, the current uh, FDA uh, dosology. And the the studies basically showed that there was, 1st map arms both showed non-inferiority in terms of mean vision gain over the first year compared to the aflibercept arm. Um, I think the thing that's caught a lot of people's attention is that uh, the results of the study also showed that a substantial majority of patients achieved some sort of extended dosing interval. So there were about 50% or more that achieved Q16-week dosing by the end of the first year, and over 70% achieved uh, Q12-week or more dosing by the end of the first year. Again, we'll have longer-term results from the study um, going out to two years, and and then there'll be an open-label extension um, of these studies as well. And, you know, as we've seen with other previous trials in general, uh, this appeared to be a relatively safe and well-tolerated drug. There's been a lot of attention paid to ocular adverse events um, after what we saw with bralucizumab, where, you know, after uh, the drug was approved, there was a lot more discussion about the occurrence of occlusive um, arteriolitis and and other uh, inflammatory vascular events. But the Mab uh, safety profile appeared to be good at, with the one-year data reported. Um, and so, you know, we're seeing very reasonable vision gains compared to a fliviracept. Um, actually, it seemed to dry out the retinas perhaps a little bit more. The OCT thicknesses uh, were a little bit better in the Foresmab arms. And so I think the question is going to be, assuming that it achieves FDA approval, where this falls into our armamentarium of anti-VEGF agents. In the U.S., well, you know, I, I suspect that there'll be an early wave of enthusiasm for trying for smab, you know, really for patients in particular who haven't responded to other anti-VEGF therapies. Scientifically, there's there's a nice rationale that perhaps if you're also uh, blocking you know, or, or addressing the and 2 pathway, maybe that uh, allows some patients to respond that don't respond to uh, therapy with, with just a single anti-VEGF agent. There's no actual clinical trial data out on that to see whether it's more effective, but I think people will, will try it for many of their patients. And then we'll have to see where it falls in terms of in the hierarchy of, of anti-VEGF agents for patients that are just getting started on anti-VEGF therapy.
1: But, but wasn't it a bit unfair because the, the aflibercept wasn't allowed to be extended mm-hmm. to 12 and 16 weeks? Do you think that if the trial would have been designed in a different way where extension for flippercept was possible, would it not still be possible that, they, that the flippercept would have done the same thing?
2: You know, Rainier, it is, it is certainly possible. I think they, they designed the trial very cleverly. Um, I would have loved to see a true head-to-head comparison with the exact same retreatment algorithm. Um, you know, I think there are a number of reasons they, they, they didn't design it that way. But I think we just don't know. But it's, it's a question that I think is on many of our minds.
1: I was a bit disappointed that the visual outcomes weren't any better than with the flibrocepts.
2: Right, right. You know, look. I think all of us, you know, with our patients' best interests at heart, would have loved to see a new agent with, you know, superior efficacy and not just non-inferior efficacy. And and clearly, that that didn't happen in this study. And uh, and yet, you know, so so really, the appeal of this, if you're right now, from what we know about the drug, I think two things that perhaps might uh, lend appeal to this drug are number one, the fact that. Perhaps you can increase dosing for some of your patient, uh, dosing intervals for some of your patients, and number two, that perhaps again, you know, without being backed by clinical trial evidence, but perhaps addressing the N two pathway might allow some patients to respond that don't respond to just anti vegf treatment. I think we don't you, we Jekyll. don't know for sure though. Yeah. Jacob,
3: do you think that adding this molecule, uh, blocking angiopoietin two is a good idea because it is on the same way at anti-BGF and not a completely new one.
4: Yeah, it's uh, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of looking into the clinical data and, and, and here we have 50% of patients who after the loading phase could go up to treatment for only one uh, every four months. I think that's, that's very delicate. Efficacy, well, that's almost the same as in other trials. And again, here, the, the principal endpoint of non-inferiority was indeed met in comparison to Aflipacept. But I think most studies, they will give you uh, one or maybe two lines of visual improvement for, for the drugs. Uh, so so for, for treating physicians, I think the long durability of a drug is very attractive. And and here, I think map looks interesting, like... Uh, the port delivery system trials uh, will probably also do.
3: Uh, I have another question uh, for, for both of you. But if brolocisumab had no the side effects of inflammation, even brolocisumab is drying the retina in a short time and for a long period, which is the difference between them? We cannot say because there is not a randomized clinical trial. Scientifically, we cannot. But One side is and the pure anti-VGF, with a smaller molecule, and the other, farisimab, is a two-pathway effective. But if the results are the same, what does it mean really, part of physiologically and then pharmacologically? Well, that's
1: the the point, I mean, basically the the results don't really show as yet that adding inhibition of angiopoietin-2 makes any difference. Uh, yeah. It might, but, um, we still need other studies or, or other data to, 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 I mean, theoretically angiopoietin-2 inhibition is very attractive, not only because of its direct role in angiogenesis and, uh, vascular leakage, but also there's a lot of literature on the role of angiopoietin-2 in a preclinical retinopathy. So in the early stages of, uh, of the disease uh, upstream of the site threatening, uh, conditions. So theoretically it, it's a very attractive uh, thing that's why I'm I am disappointed that the results are not more robust with regards to um, uh, efficacy but maybe we will learn later that the effects on the inhibition of retinopathy itself is more robust than uh, than by just anti-vegf
2: Now I I do think that there was some signal in Yosemite and Ryan that perhaps suggests that a blockade of anti 2 pathway is Uh, Helpful in terms of retinal drying, you know the reductions in central subfield thickness over one year, pretty consistently favored the faricimab over a flibricept. But here's the thing, you know, uh, I think a consistent challenge we have in the area of diabetic macular edema is that although in general eyes that are thinning out their retinas and and getting more normal also are improving their vision, it's not the correlation is not a one to one correlation, and so you know we see actually just a very modest correlation, you know, with a coefficient of maybe 0.3, 0.4 across the studies between visual acuity and retinal thickness. And so this is something, you know, so I think even when we're having these useful hints about pathophysiology, it's important to to keep the vision as is really the primary outcome for our patients.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think we it's time to move to our third uh, subject. We will, we will learn more about phorizumab in the future. Uh, we have a completely different subject to uh, finish our podcast, which is... Um, artificial intelligence in diabetic retinopathy uh, screening. And um, of course, uh, as many of you know, there are already approved devices for uh, diabetic retinopathy screening. But uh, if I can give the word to uh, uh, Jacob to um, spark off the discussion on, on uh, and maybe give us a little overview of the field uh, of artificial intelligence in screening to uh, start a part of the discussion.
4: Yeah, yeah, thank you. So so as you all know, in the last five or seven years, there have been a lot of trials on, on this, and we have had very impressive results. So what happened at that stage? Well, artificial intelligence went from machine learning to deep learning. So in machine learning, you will have some images and you will give some rules to your algorithm, and then it will make uh, some results for you. But in deep learning, you go the other way around. So here you give a lot of images to the machine and you give the results and then the machine work out the rules. So so that's the other approach. And when this was introduced, you had some very, very strong results in the trials. Uh, You had sensitivities and you had specificities of above 90 percent, and that was very strong. Uh, and, And that's why I think this has been so so encouraging and, and why this has also been approved, FDA approved, uh, and and has been implemented also in some countries.
1: Yeah, of course it's the, the sensitivity and specificities is what is reported about these devices. But it's very important to always keep in mind that the specificity and sensitivity is always relative to the gold standard used in a given study. And the, the gold standards used in the in the different publications that are around for all kinds of different devices is, is very variable. We know that the FDA has requested for the first device that was approved to maintain a very high gold standard with um, seven field stereo photographs and OCT uh, as the gold standard to compare uh, the performance of the, uh, of the device with. And that device made the, uh, the pre-specified uh, levels of the FDA and is now approved. But it, it's always very important to keep in mind and to to, to look at the actual gold standard used, because the gold standard is is just two graders who are by by themselves have low very low sensitivity. Then the the outcomes will will look very favorable, but in, in real life will will not be so uh, so good. But I think we should talk about uh, implementation of uh, of these devices for a few minutes. For example, in in Italy, uh, Eduardo it would it be possible to implement some of these available devices in daily practice of DR
3: screening. Yeah, the- theoretically, yes, because some of them, at least a few of them, have, have, have CE mark, which is typical for any device or medical product in, uh, in Europe, for example. The, but the most important point is that there is no diffusion of this and there is no idea about this. I think in my country... We are really a bit at the beginning of the story, because even the screening with the human examiners is not so diffuse. And I think that this is the way I'm promoting in my country. We are now using two artificial systems for this, but just to trying to see if there is reliable compared to the examiners. Because if you compare different softwares or tools for performing diabetic retinopathy screening, you don't find the same results. And this is critical to me, because when the amount of false positive or false negative varies so much among them, I don't know which one I have to choose really. And my gold standard are my examiners at baseline because the human eyes. And moreover, there is another point Which recording, meaning which kind of photographs are we, or digital photographs, are we really analyzing? And which is the field of examination, because it depends on the quality of images about the possibilities by deep learning in particular. We are more accustomed with the deep learning than with the machine learning, which is the quality of image you need to have to perform this one accurately. And we have also seen comparing one of these systems with the human examiners that is not really the same in the different quality of photos and age of patients, for example. So, uh, the problem of application of artificial intelligence depends, in my opinion, for its diffusion, on a, not a standard, but a standardization of acquiring the images. I cannot think about the seven fields stereoscopic EDDRS system, which is not only quite difficult, you need a technician, a photographer, while screening must be done, in our opinion, by the general practitioner, at least in my country. Yeah, well,
1: as maybe as you know, one of the available uh, devices approved by the FDA has a, a first a quality check of the uh, of the image quality, which is done by separate software, and that allows the operator of the system to uh, make new photographs. and And in their trial, they reach something like ninety uh, six percent evaluable uh, images. So that that is one approach that uh, that is taken. And another also an approach is of. To to sell these devices with the camera that will allow a one stop system to be used in in any uh, any situation. But uh, Jennifer, how, how is this going in the in the states, and and how do you think about uh, AI in the DR screening?
2: Oh, I, I think AI is is very promising, and you know it's sort of exciting to see the the potential for this in terms of building scalable models of uh, allowing screening and then triage of our patients with diabetes. Because the reality is, you know, diabetes is just a growing global epidemic. And, and we don't have enough healthcare professionals to take care of adequately screening all of the diabetic patients, you know, for their yearly eye examination that we would like to. So I'm very excited about the possibility of AI and in particular in the incorporation of AI into telemedicine programs. I think there are there are the lots of challenges and, and you and Eduardo and, and Jakob have mentioned many of them in addition to all of the challenges on the front end in terms of ensuring specific image quality, making sure that the algorithms themselves are reliable and and valid. I think you have challenges also in making sure that the information you get from the algorithm is used for the benefit of the patient. And so some of the challenges that we've seen as we've grown telemedicine programs through Jaws and Diabetes Center's program is the need to make sure you have effective ways to immediately triage patients who need care or urgent procedures to make sure that they get, they get them because you know if you identify high risk proliferative characteristics in a patient but you don't have an ophthalmologist that's available to treat them or see them frankly it's it's not that much benefit to the patient so it's just one more thing i think to think about as we uh, put these programs together
3: uh, all
1: right and and that's the kind of problems you you have run across that that could happen in uh, because i think uh, jacob mentioned something similar for denmark uh, isn't it jacob
4: yeah, the, the, the question is, is not uh, why are the results so promising, but, but why have no, we not implemented them yet? And, and in Denmark, the problem is that uh, we cannot use uh, any of the existing algorithms because we have a different uh, detection rate. So we only need patients uh, referred for treatment if they have proliferative diabetic retinopathy or diabetic macular edema. So, so if you have an algorithm which identifies, for instance, patients with severe or maybe even just a moderate, non proliferative retinopathy or above, then we calculated that we would have 90% false positives for referral. And that's why we cannot implement that. So, so we need to build our own system. I think that, that's the issue here, that the screening systems in different countries are very unique and very different. And that's why it's difficult to, to do this. Yeah.
1: The implementation depends very much on the, on the local circumstance because your patients are already seen by an ophthalmologist, but who would not be a medical retina specialist and and you would, you would like an algorithm for that ophthalmologist to use, to refer patients to you. Right. That's, that's the point.
4: Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 that was also an issue with some of the studies, uh, that, that I would so much like an algorithm which can identify patients with active proliferative retinopathy, not proliferative retinopathy treated by laser because they would not need more treatment, but but just active neovascularizations. And there have been very few images of that in, in many of the algorithms. For instance, in the Google algorithm only of the images had proliferative retinopathy. So so it's quite difficult to train uh, and and network to to detect that stage.
1: Well, I think the the IDX will identify vision-threatening retinopathy as a separate output. So the IDX system would work in Denmark if it was used by general ophthalmologists to identify the patients with vision-threatening retinopathy for you, if if that's what you need in Denmark. But uh, in the Netherlands, we, um, screening is done by the uh, or organized by, the, by our general practitioners, uh, which is a system which is very well developed in the Netherlands. So for them, uh, automatic screening with the available devices uh, works very well because it fits very well into their system where they used to have human graders and now they can either have full screening by uh, automatic devices or have a pre-screening by automatic devices. So, like you said, it depends very much on the context.
3: I have a sort of question for all of you. One point is that the the area of the retina you are examining varies by country by country, or there is an experience that we need wide field, ultra-wide field, seven fields, three fields, two fields. In Europe, we have two, three, seven, wide and ultra-wide, which is the right approach?
1: That that's of course the question, but if you look at the FDA approved device from at least the IDX device that was tested against the gold standard with seven field photography Mm -hmm. uh, and in combination with OCT and that had a very high sensitivity and specificity. So uh, deep learning can identify information from central field photographs, which is informative about the retina that that is obvious from that study, whether Applying AI to wide field images will even get us much further than that. That's, of course, the question. But I think in the Jocelyn, you've studied that.
3: Yeah. Uh, I will (laughs) say say the same. The Jocelyn pointed to the periphery again, correct? (laughs) (laughs)
2: We, we've been very interested in, in the far periphery uh, and ultra wide field studies, and and actually there will be um, there is a DRCR retina network study protocol AA looking at the role of ultra wide field imaging for diabetic retinopathy that was started largely because of preliminary studies from Joslin and other places that suggested that peripheral lesions might help us actually even better predict who's at risk for retinopathy worsening over time than what's just in the central seven fields. But I think, you know, the question of, of artificial intelligence and in ultra-wide field photographs is interesting. And there are certainly efforts going on, I think, in research uh, to develop some of these algorithms. You know, Eduardo, I think some of what you say about, well, what's the right field to use and, and how are we going to standardize this across global regions, you know, is is difficult. And we may, it may be that we come up with different, you know, sort of best case or best practice uh patterns based on you know low resource versus intermediate resource versus high resource settings and, and what's available frankly
3: yeah. I think that in the screening scenario we have to think about this and therefore whereas I think that the ultra wide field is probably able to catch more patients we need to to consider many areas of uh, of Europe for example Middle East uh, India and uh, and Far East where the population, There's no access to not to ultra wide field, but even to uh, standard examination by digital camera. And we need to focus on this if the problem of the epidemiology of diabetic retinopathy must be changed as the visual prognosis is concerned.
1: But don't underestimate the strength of deep learning because there's so much information even in a central photograph. It can tell your age, it can tell your blood pressure. So it can also tell a lot about your peripheral retina, I think.
3: <laughs> Perfect. Okay. I agree, I agree, I agree. So on behalf of myself and Reining, I thank you, uh, the two partners of this uh, interesting podcast, uh, and one of the first opportunity by you, retina to transfer the information on uh, not absolutely not all, but far new hot topics in the scenario of diabetic retinopathy, which we know is one of the most attractive topics in medical retina and in retina in particular. We discussed about screening, which is essential in diabetes. We discussed about the VGF, which has been known in the treatment of this disorder since more than 10 years. And we are discussing about the frontiers of pharmacotherapy. Not necessarily one we mentioned, but even new that I think will appear in the near future. I thank you, everybody, for participating in this podcast. I hope it will be useful for our euretina members and other attendees.
0: Well, Eduardo, I think you might be uh, a little bit biased towards diabetic rhinopathy, but I don't blame you. Lots of things to think about in that uh, very interesting discussion. Thank you so much to yourself, uh, Rainier Schlingerman, uh, and contributors Jennifer Sun and Jakob Grousland. I hope everyone enjoyed this episode. In the next podcast, two weeks from now, we'll have a journal club on imaging chaired by Sebastian Wolf and Tunde Peto. So look out for that. If you'd like us to cover any particular area of retina or have suggestions or questions regarding your retina or this podcast, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us podcast at yourretina.org. That's it from us. Until next time on Talking Your Retina.